Thank you for joining us, uh, those in the, in the room and those of you online, grateful to be with you as we continue in the series, Jesus, Who Is This Man? Uh, we're trying to wrap our hearts, our minds, our spirits around the identity and the purpose and the plan of this man named Jesus who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, but was so much more than just a man. What does it mean for us uh, to pursue and be pursued by and to be in relationship with Jesus, the Son of God? We've looked at this life and ministry of Jesus up to this point uh, that we're going to jump in today. We've seen that Jesus uh, launches ministry, was initiated as he was baptized. And then he begins to tell about the kingdom of God. We've seen Jesus do incredible things. He's healed people. Uh, he has cast out demons. Last week, we saw how he fed the 5,000 men plus their families with basically just a fish sandwich. Right? And he multiplies it to the masses. And today we're going to see as Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to be arrested. He knows he's going to be crucified. He knows what's coming. But what we're going to see is what happens when Jesus challenges us and who we think he should be and what he, we think he should do. And there's a life lesson that I've learned. It might be the hardest life lesson for any of us to learn. And that's that there's a big difference between what I want and what I need. Right, anybody had to be face-to-face -face with that life lesson in an uncomfortable way? I think maybe it's really become clarified for me as a parent. You know, as I look at my children, there are lots of things that they want. But my role as a parent is not to give them what they want all the time. It's to give them what they need. And sometimes what they need is a direct opposition to what they think they want. Or it stands in the way of what they think they want. And I would not be a good loving father if I gave up what they need for what they want. And here's the thing. That's how God loves you and me. How much of our time in prayer is us telling God what we want. And God's trying to tell us what we need. And this was the life lesson that the disciples had to learn. They knew what they wanted and they thought with each step as they followed Jesus that they were getting closer to what they wanted. Because what they wanted was for Jesus to come and initiate a heavenly kingdom on earth. They wanted a new Israel. They wanted to be able to look at all the people that had oppressed them over the years. The Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, and the, all those who had come before that continued to use Israel as this punching bag of the Middle East. And they wanted to be able to say, see, I told you so. God is with us and look at our kingdom now. So much so that some of the disciples even came to Jesus and they said, hey, when the kingdom shows up, I want to sit on your left or your right. I want to have some power in this kingdom. And that's what they wanted. And so as they saw Jesus do these things like healing the sick and casting out demons and feeding the multitudes, they're thinking, man, it is just right around the corner. Here we go. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, hey guys, guess what? We're about to head to Jerusalem and when we get there, I'm going to be arrested and beaten and I'm going to be crucified. 
And this flew in the face of everything that the, the disciples wanted. So much so that Peter thinks he's doing a good thing, takes Jesus aside to scold him and says, uh-uh, this is not the plan, Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. Because all you see, and I'm paraphrasing, all you see is what you want now. You can't see what you really need. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and he confronts each of them with this reality that the plan of God does not line up with what you think you want right now. And this is where we pick up, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Let me just pause for a second. We read this on the other side of Easter, but imagine being a disciple and Jesus has not yet been arrested, crucified, dead, and risen. They've not yet seen him redefine what the cross means. And what does he say? You gotta take up your cross and follow me. Imagine what that must've meant to the disciples in that moment. Verse 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What? What are you talking about, Jesus? But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's take a look at a couple of things here. Now, Jesus has confronted the disciples. I know that you want an earthly kingdom. I know you want Israel to, to show up in power and glory again, and you want to experience it firsthand. But what I'm calling you to do is to take up your cross and follow me, deny yourself. But I want you to know that a promise is coming. And so he gives them a promise here in these last few verses. He says, the son of man, he's talking about himself, is going to come in what? In his father's glory. The power is coming. The kingdom is coming. What you've been yearning for is coming. It's just not going to look like what you think. And he's going to come with his father's glory, with his angels. And then he's going to reward each person that if you stay faithful, stay the course, hold on to this life I've called you to, reward is coming for eternity. And then he says, truly I tell you, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. This is what they wanted. They wanted the kingdom. And Jesus affirms to them, some of you are going to see the kingdom the problem is, it's just not going to look like what you want it to look like. That the kingdom is coming, but it's not going to be finished and fulfilled in your lifetime fully, that there's something greater to come. And so Jesus gives them a promise to hold on to. The kingdom is coming. The reward is coming. The glory is coming. You've got to stay the course. And here's the problem. What Jesus knows is what's coming in the next few weeks. And for the disciples, what was coming in the next few years. That Jesus would 
pave the way and he would give his life and he would be arrested and beaten and crucified. He would go to the tomb. He knew that he would be in the tomb for three days and that he would rise again and he would usher in this kingdom of God. He knew for those disciples that followed him that they too would be arrested and beaten and executed for following him. He knew that John would be exiled for the rest of his life. He knew that all the followers who would come in those early days would be persecuted in a myriad of ways. And he knew that they would have to have faith and hope in the hard days ahead to hold on to the promise. If they were going to hold on, they needed fuel for their faith. If they were going to look to the promise, they needed to know that the promise was sure. And so God gives them a gift through Jesus in these next moments to help them to hold on to the promise. So we keep going. Very next verse, chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, so that means we're, we're still engaged in this conversation that Jesus is having. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, Jesus, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So God knows, Jesus knows that these disciples, to hold on to the promise, they need fuel for their faith. And so God gives them a gift here in this moment to see with their own eyes what's coming. The first thing that God shows them is that a kingdom, the one that you're longing for, the one that you thought would show up here on earth in your lifetime, that kingdom is coming. And that kingdom that's coming is so much greater than any earthly kingdom that you could ever hope for or ever imagine. Be sure of this, the heavenly kingdom is on its way. And so they get this picture of Jesus and he's transformed, he's transfigured. The word is the metamorphe, where we get the word metamorphosis from. He completely changed. His clothes become as white as light and it's like Jesus is just glowing. He's shining. And he's talking with Moses and Elijah, this incredible scene to help these disciples know and share with the others that we have proof that the kingdom of heaven is on its way. And guys, it's better than anything that we could have ever thought, ever imagined, ever hoped for. And so Peter, like Peter always does, he speaks before his brain catches up. And he says, Jesus, man, this is good for us to be here. You think, right? 
this is good for us to be here. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build three tents. Now, what in the world is Peter doing? Uh, he's not proposing they have a camp out. But he's got something else in mind. See, Peter immediately goes to Leviticus 23. And what is Leviticus 23? It lays out for the people of Israel the seven feasts that they are to follow each year. And one of those feasts was the, the uh, festival of the tabernacle or the festival of the tents. Where people would come to commemorate and remember how God had brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And how in the meantime, they traveled through the wilderness, living in tents, worshiping in God's tent, waiting for the promise to come. And not only that, but in Zechariah chapter 14, the prophet tells us, that God indeed is going to bring the heavenly kingdom, that it is on his way, that the Messiah is going to usher it in and bring it with him. And when that happens, when the new kingdom shows up, that all the nations who realize who God is will also come and set up their tents and celebrate this kingdom of God. In other words, Peter says, hey, I get it, the kingdom's here, time to set up our tents and celebrate. Now, Peter's not wrong. He's right, he's just a little early. He's jumping the gun just a little bit. And so in that moment, the father comes and hovers over them in a cloud and interrupts Peter so that this won't continue. And he says, hey, 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 hey. this is my son. Stop talking and listen to him. And they make it clear for these disciples who would share for others, the kingdom's coming, pay attention, listen to what Jesus is instructing you to do. And it wasn't just that the kingdom is coming, but the second reality that the disciples were confronted with on that mountain was that Jesus had the authority to bring it. That everything that was happening in this moment, the transfiguration, that metamorphosis, the, the vision of, of the Jesus that was going to be on the other side of the tomb, the presence of Moses and Elijah. I mean, how many of us have seen something like that? The presence of them talking with Jesus was proof to them that this Jesus who they had been following, who they kind of thought was going to do all these things, they could now know that he was going to do these things because he had authority to bring it. Now the question is, what do we do with this? What does this mean for us today in 2022? As we try to follow Jesus, as he confronts us when sometimes our wants don't match up with what we need, when what we are expecting doesn't match up with God's plan, how do we continue to have fuel for the faith and hold on to the promise? What is Jesus saying to us? Well, a couple of things that we can find here in this story that, that will give us fuel for the faith. Here's the first one, is that Jesus is God's truth. He is the complete truth of God. It was no accident, it wasn't coincidence, it wasn't just happenstance that Moses and Elijah were there talking with Jesus as he's transformed. For the people of God, Moses and Elijah represent two things, all the law and all the prophets. Now, why is that important? 
Because together those two things, the law and the prophet, represent, along with the poetry and the other aspects of, of the Old Testament, represented all of God's revealed truth to his people. And what God the Father is saying to those disciples as Jesus shows up is that my son, whom I love, is all the revealed truth for you. That it's all there. Everything you will ever need is in him. Everything you ever need to come to me, to walk with me, to be saved by my powerful hand is in him. It's all right here. And the disciples, as they gazed on the face of Moses and Elijah, now how they knew that it was Moses and Elijah, like were they wearing a name tag? Like they, they never seen these people before. I don't know, but somehow it's revealed to them so that they can know that this is the truth that they long for so they could follow him. The second truth that we see is that Jesus is God's power. He is the very power of God. Now let's talk a little bit more about this guy, Moses and Elijah. So it wasn't just that they represented the truth, the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament, all the revelation of God for his people. It was also the power that was represented in their life, but not just their life, more importantly, in their death. As you look at Moses and Elijah, you find the two most peculiar death stories of all the Old Testament. Moses in Deuteronomy 34, Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2. We look at the death of Moses. He's walked with God. He's revealed God's law. He's brought the people out of slavery. They're coming to the promised land. Moses looks out across the way and he sees the promise that's coming. He's not able to, to walk into it. That's a message for another day, but he's not able to walk into it. And it says that God talks with Moses. Moses dies and God himself buries Moses so that no one knew where Moses was buried. No one could come back and, and, and visit that tomb or that grave. No one could come back and make a shrine out of that grave to make Moses more than he was meant to be. Only God knew where he was buried. In a way, representing that God wasn't finished with Moses just yet, that there was a promise yet to come, and that it wasn't done. We flash forward to Elijah. Elijah doesn't even get to the tomb. It says that Elijah, as he's talking with Elisha, he's going to pass on his prophetic duties to this young up-and-coming prophet. And he's talking with God. And in that very moment, he's brought up in a whirlwind up to heaven. That God shows his power over death that Elijah doesn't even have to experience death. He's just brought straight up to heaven. Now, why is this important? Because in their lives, God represented his power over death. And as Jesus comes as the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets, the fulfillment of Moses and Elijah, we see in him the very power of God over death. And that Jesus will be even greater than Moses and Elijah. That he is about to display a power over death that no one saw coming. That when Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to die. He knew that he was also going to display his power over death for you and me. And then we can hold on to that. 
And then finally, Jesus is God's glory. This is probably really hard to miss for the disciples, right? I mean, if I'm standing with Jesus and he starts glowing, something's going on. And as I'm looking, as the cloud begins to just overwhelm us and the very voice of God thunders, that this is my son, it's gonna hit for me the reality that this is the glory of God in the flesh. And all the things that we wrestle with in life, we need to come back to that reality that Jesus is God's glory. He's not just a good guy. He's not just a good teacher. He didn't just do some cool sleight of hand tricks. He wasn't just a good physician. He is the very glory of God. And we follow him, not because of what he can do for us, but because of who he is, the glory of God in the flesh. And so as Jesus is coming into this very difficult week, he's about to, next week, he's going to enter into the city of Jerusalem. Interesting enough, he's going to enter in not through the king's gate, he's going to enter in through the sheep gate. Because he knows what he's about to do. He will become the Lamb of God, an offering for us. And he's going to go through this week of teaching. He's going to go through this week where he's arrested and beaten. And it's going to be the most difficult week of his earthly life. And it's going to be the most difficult week of the disciples' lives. And as he's leading up to that, he wants to remind these disciples... And I think in a way the father was reminding Jesus as Jesus heard these words of the father at his baptism, you are my son. And now he's hearing again, this is my son. I think the father in a way was encouraging and reminding Jesus who he was as he was entering this difficult week to hold on to the promise. This is fuel for the faith that the kingdom is coming and that Jesus has the authority to bring it. He is the son with authority. So what do we do with these truths? That Jesus is the truth, that Jesus is the power, that he is the glory. A couple of things real quick and we'll wrap up. Now, if Jesus is the truth of God, what do we do with that? That we listen to Jesus. We listen to him. And how do we listen to him? Well, we start with the words that have been passed down to us that we read the red letters, that we wrap our hearts and minds and souls around it, that we reflect on it, that we memorize it, that we pray over it, that we ask for the voice of God, that part of our daily prayer can be, God, I wanna hear your voice. I wanna know the difference between your voice and all the other voices. I wanna center on what you're saying. I wanna listen to you. I wanna be one with Christ by the power of your spirit. I wanna know what you're saying to me. And we listen with all that we have, reading God's word, praying through it, being silent before the Lord. And that we come to him and say, Lord, whatever it is that you want to say to me, I want to hear it. I want to absorb it. I want it to be a center of my being. And that's hard for us because we got to create some silence. And what may be the most noisy world of all of history, we got to create some silence before the Lord to hear him. And we don't stop there because if Jesus is God's power, when we hear him, 
And we've got to surrender to Jesus. In other words, as we hear the voice of God, we've got to obey the voice of God. That we follow him. That as we read his word, as we meet with him in prayer, as he orchestrates things in our lives, that we are submitted to him. That we don't insist on what we want. We don't insist on our own way or own plan. That we're trying to follow him and trying to submit to him and say, whatever you're doing, whatever the call, whatever the question, whatever you invite me to, Lord, the answer is yes. That I'm not concerned about steps B, C, and D. I'm just taking that first step toward you. That I understand that, that loving you means obeying you. That trusting you and having faith in you means saying yes to you. That I don't really have faith in you until I'm willing to submit to you. It's not about intellectual belief. It's, a, it's about a surrender of the will. And here's a truth that I, I'm trying to wrestle with. Because my intellectual brain, my, my, my insistence on logic and reason, it, sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't compute with this truth that I don't have to have full understanding to have full obedience. I don't have to understand the plan or where it's taking me to say yes to Jesus. I just surrender to him. And then finally, if Jesus is the glory of God, I worship Jesus. Here's what I think it boils down to. It's not just singing songs, although that's part of it. It's not just prayer, although that's part of it. It's not just fasting, although that's part of it. It's not just, you know, being silent before the Lord, although that's part of it. Ultimately, what we're talking about when we are worshiping Jesus, it means that we give him in our lives ultimate priority and ultimate authority. That Jesus comes first in all things and Jesus is in charge of all things when it comes to my life. That is our act of worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that we give our bodies as a living sacrifice, as an act of worship to God so that our minds will be transformed. That in the changing of the way that we think and what we want and what we will, will draw us into the plan and the will of God. In other words, if we wanna be one with Christ, if we wanna walk with him fully and more closely and more intimately, we give him all priority and all authority. You come first and you're in charge. Jesus invites us into this way to hold on to the promise, to hold on to the faith, knowing that he has authority it is no mistake, no coincidence that as Jesus is wrapping up his earthly ministry with his disciples after he's resurrected and he comes and he meets with the disciples in Matthew 28, he gathers them up on another mountain. It just says a mountain where he told them. Maybe it was this mountain. I don't know. But he gathers them up on a mountain on a high place and he says, listen to me. All authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me. All authority, and not just in heaven, but on earth and in heaven has been given to me. So go, and as you're going, make disciples.
As you're going, teach. As you're going, baptize. As you're going, teach them the way that I've given to you. Teach others to give me priority and authority in their lives, that they will know the truth and the power of God and the glory of God as they follow me. Teach them that the kingdom is coming because authority has been given to me. And so as we walk through this life, there's going to be lots of moments where our wants are confronted by our needs, by what we think should be is confronted by the plan of God. And those moments where what we think we understood is falling apart. And the invitation that God gives us doesn't come with all the steps. It only comes with the first step. And in those moments, I don't know what decision you're making right now. Maybe it's about a job or a relationship or something that God's calling you to or a big decision in your life. I'm not sure what it, it is for you right now. And you're weighing out all the stuff and you're doing what we do and here's all the positives and here's all the negatives and you're trying to balance it on the scales of life. And you're trying to make that decision in your will and in your understanding. And God has given you an invitation. Here's what my, my encouragement is to you, is you don't have to have full understanding to have full obedience. Because Jesus has authority to bring his kingdom into your life as we say yes to him. Would you hold on to that faith that the promise is coming with that decision that he's calling you to? And perhaps it's a, an eternal decision as you've, you've tried to do this life on your own and what Jesus is calling you to, to is ultimate surrender, to put a trust in him, not just an intellectual belief, but a surrender to him because he has authority. And here's the thing, as we say yes to Jesus, never, ever, ever doubt he's already said yes to you. He doesn't ask you to do something that he wasn't willing to do, that he led the way. He gave his life. He went to the grave. But he overcame it for you and me that we could have life.